to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley. I'm the Editorial Director of InnovationOz.com. We're talking today with Leslie Seebeck. Welcome, Leslie. Leslie is the Chief Executive and a Professor at the Cyber Institute at the Australian National University. She's a member of the Naval Shipbuilding Advisory Board and at various times, I won't go through your whole biography, there's a lot going on here inside and outside of government, but obviously spent uh, time at the Digital Transformation Agency and uh, within meteorology, finance, defence and PM&C at various times. So we, uh, we're talking about the 2020 cybersecurity strategy today and then cyber issues more broadly, maybe a bit later in the conversation. But given that it's so fresh, I just wanted to set the scene a little bit um, before we get into it. So November 2019, Andy Pan was appointed to lead an advisory board to look at 2020 cybersecurity strategy. It's an update on the original 2016. I think there'd been a refresh in 2017, but people would agree that it was time for another look at it. On June 19, the PM gave that kind of headland speech where he was warning of increased activity generally, part COVID-related, but also he talked about the sustained attacks of an unnamed nation-state actor. Many people believe that was China. June 30 came that massive funding increase a big cybersecurity commitment, I think $1.3 billion. Then the advisory delivered its recommendations on July 21st, 60 recommendations. And then on August the 5th, just a few days ago, Scott Morrison talked about some cyber issues related to the Indo-Pacific. And they had a fairly grim or challenging picture of some strategic issues in our region. Anyway, yesterday, the cybersecurity strategy was launched. So against that, Backdrop, Leslie Seebeck, we've seen a very high level of engagement from the most senior levels of government. What's your top line view of what was in that cybersecurity strategy? And has it kind of played out in the way that you thought it might in terms of its creation? So one of the challenges in cyber is exactly, as you've set out, it's growing, it's multidimensional it's shifting and changing almost on a daily basis. And, you know, it's directly affected and is changed by and changes other effects or activities in the environment. For example, COVID, the pandemic, has meant that we're increasingly online and more and more reliant. That in turn has meant, of course, that we are increasingly vulnerable to the effects of cybersecurity. So I think the Prime Minister is quite right to draw attention to the increase in the uh, threat in the environment and the nature of that threat. But I think here with the strategy, what it's meant is that it's been a real struggle for people even inside government to get their head around what exactly it is. Cybersecurity is a emergent outcome of the, the complex interactions between systems, data, people, the environment patterns of usage. There's a range of things here that just makes it very, very difficult to describe, to to prioritise, to actually sort of sit down and say, here is the one thing we're going to solve it, because it isn't. And importantly, for each one of us, everything in that document affects our daily lives. You cannot separate yourself anymore from such documents, from technology. 
And it's precisely because we now carry around with us tracking devices called iPhones and Android devices everywhere with us. So everything in that document affects what we do in our daily lives. And I don't think that's really fully understood or comprehended by the citizen in the street. And I don't think it's really been grasped at the level of government to the sense of how do we actually do a, for example, a user-centered design version of this. I will say one thing on that you know, with, with the document, and you can see that because they've gone for breadth. They're trying to cover as many bases as they possibly can. And that came out of the community discussions. You might recall when Department of Home Affairs was going around the nation, they would do you know, the classic you know, sit down, consult with people and put lots of sticky notes up. And there was so many sticky notes covering a whole range of issues, which, you know, range from the deeply personal to the how do I get economic advantage out of this for my business or protect myself or gain business to this is really important in the broader global order. And because there is not an organising principle in that document, because there is no vision of the future, except it's getting bad, we know that. But what is the vision of the future that's appropriate to Australia? The document struggles. Now, I'll give you an example of what that vision might be. And if this is something that I think is when you're thinking about with the advent of COVID, there is a reasonable argument that could be made that we, in the terms of security, in terms of the trust and integrity of the internet, we may have reached and gone past peak internet. And the reason I say that is because IT to do well, sustainably, reliably, is hard. That's not merely an issue about the technology. It's about all the systems around it. It's about its use. Does it meet its intended use or has it been adapted? Are people exploiting it? Is it being sustained? Is there adequate finance to fund you know, just making sure that things are kept up to date? And that's most of what cyber you know, hygiene is, is actually just making sure things are funded appropriately. Do I have people with the right skills? What's happened when I actually partner with a different economic partner or organisation? Is the configuration in place? It's very hard to do this. And as we're relying more and more on the internet, the pressure on that is growing. The Prime Minister has already flagged the fact that we are heading into a darker, poorer world, and so those resources are less likely to be available, and global tensions are increasing. So there is more pressure on our daily lives from global players that we wouldn't normally expect. Again, the documents flag some of that, but there is not that sort of sense about actually the internet is going to be deeper, darker, and frankly, it's going to be harder, much harder for your government, and I do not believe this document will do it, for government to assure protection around that. So that's one thing. And I'll just touch on a couple of other things very quickly because I suspect we'll quite circle around this. Yeah. Out of that too, you need an organising principle because at the moment, home affairs have gone for breadth. They've tried to cover off everything. And because cybersecurity or cyber is so multidimensional, there's not a prioritisation mechanism. If you're doing a strategy, you want an organising principle that reflects what you want for your country in the future. And I'll pose one. And I'll draw directly from the document the Prime Minister quoted the other day, the Aspen Institute, a struggle for power document. There is a chapter in there that talks about openness and the importance of openness as a tool for democracies to help establish an environment, you know, whether you want to call that a rules-based order or a norms-based order, following on from Hedley Bull and so on, as an organising principle. And doing that, if we push democracy and openness as our organising principle, 
rather than some of the others that you can pick up as minor themes that tend to thread themselves through cybersecurity strategies now and in, you know, in the past, that's got the range of its significant advantages. Helps build trust with our citizens, reflects our values, builds on our strengths because, again, Western liberal democracies have been able to use things like the scientific method to be able to build a strong science background, technology background, etc. It lets us exert soft power in the region and push back against authoritarian regimes and their practices, which are very insidious and tempting. And it enables us to think about statecraft. And once you've done that, so you've got a big picture about what the future might be, you've got an organising principle, then you prioritise and allocate resources. And that will give you a coherent strategy, which will then sort of tend to roll out. Okay, so we've got some giant themes there, and I guess that's part of what you've just pointed out. First of all, you're essentially saying what they're trying to do is too broad and they haven't come up with a central theme of engagement for the various parts of the ecosystem or society. Talk to me about the user-centred design for a document like that. Is it literally a matter of finding that that organising principle and then stepping down from that? How do we get I mean, this is a, a kind of a cross-economy, cross-society issue. So how do we how do we engage all those different parts of that system? So the breadth is understandable. As I said, it's multidimensional. So it's fully understandable that they're trying to cover up things, but it tends to be a bit of a grab bag as a result. So what you need there is a conceptual structure to give it some shape and form, and that's missing. The user-centred design comes in as part of the big picture and where you think this is going and where those trends are going. What does the world look like? And it's not just merely a linear, oh, it's getting worse. There are, there are shifts and changes there. Given the organising principle, and particularly if we are going to say, as a democracy, we believe that individuals are the core element of a democracy, for example, then naturally user-centred design will tend to follow out of that. If it's then saying, we're a market economy, and we believe that economic well-being generates from a regulated market, a well-stewarded and regulated market, then, of course, you will go back and say, what does this look like? Not merely from the point of view of large business, which features prominently in the document, but from, say, small startups. How do you build that? And so then as part of that prioritisation, you'd be sitting down saying, right, we've got the big settings, we've got the organising principle that align with our values, let us take, you know, sit down and work through that element about James. Let's take, you know, James. And what does this mean for James in his everyday life and his aspirations? But we also need to avoid the problems about some of you as user-centered design, and that is standardization. And this is why you need that diversity of inputs and diversity of experiences. You need the small enterprises. You need different enterprises on the supply chain, for example, as well as the ones actually dealing at the interface of cybersecurity. You need James who's sitting there, who's in the country, a long way away from Canberra and the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, but he's trying to understand how he can sort of deal with this ransomware that's being attacked and how he can work with his community to build more resilience in that community because government can't be there all the time. How then it also needs to be taken into account, there's no reason why people inside government shouldn't actually also expose themselves to the same process, but they cannot be allowed to dominate it because governments are there to serve the population, the citizenry of Australia, not to direct or control them. That's an authoritarian regime. So once we get a number of those sort of things in place, we should be able to then do the work to actually sit down, analyse it and say, okay, 
here's some priorities, here are some blockers that will prevent some of these things. This is something we hadn't seen before. For example, we actually might think that small and medium enterprises was hesitate before they let big business look after their data or IP. Or we might take someone else who's, um, let's call a Sarah for argument's sake, who's concerned about her data. How do we actually build that? And how can we build those into it? So the strategy, so it actually reinforces the organizing principle so we're better able to deal with that environment. Again, I understand, you know, I, I really empathize with home affairs here. They've got a huge breadth of things that they have to cover, but they're clearly just struggling to work their way through. How do we think about this? And so the easiest way when you're under pressure to get something else is, oh, yes, we've, we've, we've covered that one off. We've covered that one off, etc. Yeah, look, that breadth is very fascinating. I'll return to this shortly, but it does seem every time or in, in more recent times, whenever we've talked about cyber or cybersecurity, we've also talked about what is effectively policing and intelligence, for want of a better word. But look, I wanted to ask you just before we get there, still at the big picture, what was the difference in the design priorities, I suppose, between 2016 and 2020? In 2016, there were some kind of landmark initiatives. The creation of Oz Cyber was one that was added to the Growth Centre's strategy and obviously the appointment of Tobias Feekin as the Cyber Ambassador. But in this one, it's a little different. So what are the priorities that are different between 2016 and now? <laughs> I will admit I'm sort of struggling to recall exactly what the details, certainly Oz Cyber the cyber ambassador, the international, having a, you know, a second international strategy and very important, really important if you want to push back against that peak internet idea I was talking about before. But I will say the one difference is the fact that 2016 comes across as having more of that conceptual structure, the more of an understanding of the internet as, or, you know, cybersecurity as being an ecosystem of things that you need to address and having the tools there to be able to do that. So OSCyber is clearly a tool to build that sovereign capability that is so critical to actually our place in the world. And similarly with Toby's role as well, it's very much, you know, here is a tool or a mechanism that allows the you know, government both to exert influence but also to actually understand more the environment rather than a tendency to have a, oh, we'll just move the pieces around. So you have to understand these positions not merely as being just go and do but also Actually, we've learned and we now want to be able to sort of grow or develop because there's more information and the world's changed. One of the problems about the emphasis on defence and national security mechanisms that we've seen since the end of the Cold War, because at the end of the Cold War, you might recall that you know, we thought we'd won. So we sat back and said, great, sword into plowshares. But then we realised the world actually wasn't that easy and... Instead of, of saying, okay, we need a multidimensional response, and this is not just Australia. I mean, you can sort of point to US, UK, you know, the West in general. We said, oh, we have to keep our defence capability up and our intelligence for that purpose. And I'll get to what happened in the war on terror in a moment. But then we let the civilian side and all the things about resilience and coordination and everything from Radio Australia to Voice of America to some of those other mechanisms we had in place those tended to die, but we kept the military going. When you allow yourself only one tool or one mechanism to deal with a difficult and changeable environment, you'll leave yourself vulnerable to only using that one mechanism. Often, you know, if you're building a house, you don't just go in with a hammer. 
you'll have, you know, you'll have saws, you'll have, you know, paintbrushes, you'll, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we've had a tendency just to sort of say, oh, actually, we've done this, it will just have the hammer. And so what's ended up happening is that over time, that sort of focus has grown in range to a whole range of, of problems. So now we have the military, for example, doing everything from, because we keep putting money into them, everything from bushfires to pandemics to aged care. We've got, you know, national security is now the first thing you, you know, pull out for any issue they might have to deal with. And the war on terror has shifted that focus from the external to the internal. And so we've seen the rise of the law enforcement side of the house as being, oh, well, and now you people like you and I are, well, we're under suspicion because of that focus on terrorism. And that's similarly the hammer they will start looking and say, actually, I can see other things here. I can see business transactions. I can see you know, your behaviour might be a bit odd today, so that's really suspicious. And this is one of the reasons trust is breaking between the citizen and government and democracies. Yeah, you kind of feel for the designers of this strategy, it is a massive yeah. task. And, you know, to me, as in so much government policy, a lot of the task is simply a communications issue. And I think maybe that's probably... Uh, we'll see what happens with the, yep. the 2020 strategy, but it's something that's been a little bit underdone on the cyber side. Just very, very quickly, I think you probably addressed it in those comments, but this nexus of policing and security, I suppose that, that's quite simply a, a product of the, the process you've described around war on terror. The other issue too with cyber is it's growing. I mean, the cyber of 20 years ago is quite different to the cyber now precisely because of, you know, again, the mobile devices we, we carry with us everywhere. You know, to me, that's been a sea change, which we just accepted. I mean, you know, now we carry these things with us all the time. 20 years ago, I remember Palm Pilots, you know, they were a bit of a toy. The thing is, though, that because it is so embedded on our daily lives, this isn't a topic and an area that is too important to be left to the military, who are well aware of the constraints because there's a whole range of rules that have been involved over a century plus about, you know, the use of the military in civilian circumstances, which is lacking around a lot of the law enforcement because they've always been more engaged with the community. But these things are too important to be left to the national security community alone. And similarly, we need to make sure, again, where is all those governance mechanisms that have, as I said, grown up with the military over the years, also need to grow and mature on the other side. So accountability, transparency, people being held to account. If you just go and tell people about your successes, as I've said in other forum, that's just marketing. Yeah. It's not governance. Okay, I want to ask you uh, something that was seen a bit light on in the 2020 strategy was any kind of structured framework around industry development, how we build local capability and local capacity. I mean, outside of, you know, direct kind of funding of, of skills either in, inside government or outside of government. So really the industry development side of things. Oz Cyber came out of the 2016 strategy we mentioned. But although it was talked about in this strategy, there was no commitment to further funding or expanded programs or, or anything of that nature. I'm just it kind of fascinated me because sovereign capability in the COVID environment has become such a discussion point. No one even knew what that was four months ago. Now we're all talking about it. This would be the case in the information industry as much or more than anywhere else. And yet in this massive document, we talk about the very little. So what do you make of that? Yeah, and that's exactly what I, my thoughts were, was I was looking through saying, where are the lessons of COVID? It's not merely that COVID is changing the international environment, which is putting more pressure on cyber and so on, 
there are lessons from COVID around two, two things in particular, societal resilience, because government cannot do everything. There is a temptation, particularly when you're here in Canberra, to sort of say, oh, yes, we'll just change the world the way we want. You can't do everything. In a complex system, the point of action is more likely to be at that end point, you know, in local communities and so on. And so, again, this is where I think that really we need to think differently about cyber. We need to be able to give the tools to the people at those endpoints and help them build up local communities rather than saying, oh, just keep coming back to us for, you know, expertise and so on. So that's one thing is how you actually think about resilience. What are the lessons from COVID in this environment? And I don't mean the lessons about, oh, we'll just close down borders, the top-down control, you know, immediate reaction. There is an element of that, particularly if you know you're under attack and you need to sort of, you know, uh, do things like, again, quarant- you know, a lot of the language is very similar too, quarantine the system, et cetera. But the other thing too is all the issues around sovereignty. And this is, is increasing an issue in, you know, sort of other parts of the national security environment too, is that how do you ensure, and we've been talking about it too for ages, it seems like data sovereignty and so on has been around in the, in the technology space for quite some time. But how do you build up sovereignty? And sovereignty consists um, primarily of having the know-how, having the resources, and having the capability and having the intent to do things. So the know-how at the moment, one of the problems is that we're so incredibly dependent on, you know, again, multinationals, foreign companies. We haven't been building, and we've you know, been guilty of this for the last 30 years. This is not a partisan issue. Both sides are guilty of it. We haven't been building that sort of know-how for quite some time. So how do you build that over time? Because if you can't rely on you know, multinationals, their interests, quite rightly, are going to be different from that of particularly an individual citizen who end up having to bear most of the risk, but also the national government. I mean, this is part of the problem with the arguments that you see in the US about with Silicon Valley and you know, the Pentagon and so on as well. The interests are different. And quite rightly, one is responsible shareholders, although, you know, again, there's a strong argument to say that you should also be upholding the systems, you know, again, the democratic governments of the systems that allow you to actually to establish and to work, et cetera. And you can see that on the economic side with people like Mariana Mazzucato as well. So that's going to be different. So you need to build up that capability and know-how. What we have here in Australia are sales officers or lobbyists. They're not the IP. They are not the decision makers. And we need to actually have that in country. The skills, you know, again, is uh, need to be picked up. And that's going to be, again, an issue about industry policy. People are quite, you know, have quite rightly pointed out that we actually do produce quite a lot of scientists, but there are no jobs for them. So how do we actually create that ecosystem that will sustain them and let them grow as well? One answer is exactly the work that people like Pazosov are doing, is encouraging that startup ecosystem because, again, there's only limited capacity in things like government or even big business, particularly until we actually start building industries. So allow people that creativity. And, again, there's a whole issue around there about regulation, tax arrangements and so on that need to be undertaken. Then there's, again, the broader issue around the capability. And, you know, so you've got that um, the skill stuff, the broader issue around the capability. Where are the industries that's going to sustain all this as well? So it's that stuff from that, um, you know, the 1990s book by Michael Porter about the five forces. You've got to look at, you know, one, you know, the inputs, the uh, value chain downstream, the things that will help you, other competitive elements and so on to help build that particular capability. We have particular strengths in agriculture, mining. You know, we're keen to develop a space industry. So why aren't we thinking about mining on asteroids just for argument's sake? Now, anything in space involves cyber. So we should be already thinking about these sort of things as well. And then there's intent. Does the government intend 
to actually build capability and sovereignty because unless it's willing to actually back its words, and this goes back to people like management theorists like Henry Mintzberg, you can have all the strategy you want on the, on the shelf there. That means nothing compared to where you're actually putting your money. And so this is where the money equation is very important. Often if I want to look at a company or an organisation or a country and say, what is its strategy? I'm better off looking at the budget papers where they're actually spending money than looking at the document that's put across. Declaratory strategy has its, you know, has its role, but you really want to see where the money's going. Yeah, that industry component, it's very fascinating because, I, I mean, I would think if you want to build capability, then you've got to start building things and you need your own people doing it rather than buying it and implementing it. Yeah. No, no one kind of created expertise that way. Yeah, it's that classic thing you learn by doing. I mean, it's, you know, when you're going off and doing a startup and so on, you actually don't just talk about it. It's better if you've got a prototype you can show people. And by doing it, you will actually learn and so on about it. And you'll fail. The whole point of learning is also failing. And I think there's a, a natural risk aversion which is growing in government, which is, um, which is working to our disadvantage as well. Okay, so just very quickly on defence. Defence spending, certainly in the Turnbull era and the Christopher Pine regime over there, defence spending has always kind of been attached to some fairly specific industry development goals of thinking shipbuilding and subs and all that kind of stuff and all the ancillary stuff that goes around it. I guess the money tends to go into a bit of a black box. We don't hear about it in the same way we might in a commercial area. So how cyber, I would think, would be a, would be well suited to that sort of thing. But although much of the money in this strategy is attached to defence, it doesn't seem to be attached to industry development goals. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things there. One, again, is the breadth. Defence is a well-known thing. You can actually sort of, you know, it's got a, uh, a budget, budget envelope. It's a sort of, you know, known, fairly easy identifiable organisation, environment, function role. It's well understood. It's matured. Cyber is new and changing. It's, again, goes back. It's in your life. It's in my life. Who should take control of it? State governments, federal governments, even local councils. So because it is so intertwined with our lives and ubiquitous, again, this is part of the problems, I think, and the conceptual issues that home affairs have been struggling with. You know, how do we define these things? It's spread across so many departments. Every department you can mention has got a cyber concern. Health, you, know, you look at Internet of Things devices, that's a major issue from health. Data is ubiquitous and so on. So I think this is where we need to have a bit of a reconceptualization of cyber. And I would be argue, I will argue until I'm blue in the face, is that it does not sit in the national security realm. It sits more in the civilian realm, but there is considerable national security elements to it, just like there is for things like the economy. Cyber is also is a conceptual and difficult environment. Once you start thinking in those terms, again, it comes down to what your organising principle is. So if you go back to the early one I said, then you can start saying, actually, we can now start thinking about industry goals. What is it that we need to make sure? Where do we put our money so that James, as an individual, is better able to walk through a world and protect himself? That he's actually able to be able to sort of say that, you know, he knows if anyone's tracking him, for example, what sort of technologies might be needed and where do we put our money in? And again, at the moment, the other thing about the uh, strategy is not just about people and organisations and government. The technology stack itself, from my earlier reading, because I'm trying to get my head around it, is also ignored. Networks, you know, the underlying network infrastructure. You know, we talk about critical infrastructure, 
but that every one of those encompasses everything from your sort of networks to your databases to your operating systems to your applications to your interfaces and your interactions with other machines as well as with people and with the environment and so on. So how can we start thinking about in those terms? And we might say, okay, we might focus on one of the principles of cybersecurity is the deeper you are in the stack, the more power you have. Let's focus hard on those networks. And this is where, it's, you know, again, having the MBN on the industry panel is actually quite useful, but it's not the only thing there because now, of course, we're talking about 5G, etc. But how do we actually start thinking about that and what does that mean for industry goals? What does it mean for the research, which, by the way, I think only 1% was actually, or something like that was actually allocated towards research, which is all about the future. How do we actually sort of think about where we go to fund things and so on? Do we actually want to get into the chip layer? That's another question. Because if we're in the chip layer, then it actually gives us, again, not only sovereign capability, it gives us knowledge about what these things can do and cannot do and a potential comparative advantage as well. So I think part of the problem, again, is just how do we conceptualise this problem? What is our fundamental organising principle? And what is the world is that we're, we think we're going to be confronting? All right, Leslie Seabeck, we'll uh, draw it to a close shortly. I did want to, I'll make, well, firstly, I wanted to make a point. I guess it is good. We've got the Prime Minister talking about this, yeah. you know, publicly, openly and quite loudly. So that's got to be a positive sign for the focus of this government. On the metric of the funding, I mean, this package, for want of a better term, $1.7 billion over 10 years, I'm not sure why, like, that's, that is so far in the future, I don't think anyone can really see it. But there you have it. What do you make of the that metric? So as anyone who knows me or knows my CV can see, I used to uh, look at the, you know, when I was working in the Department of Finance, look at the defence budget. That was part of my responsibilities. And $1.7 billion over 10 years is, is not much money. And even more so when you're great bulk of that, because it's not clear it's new money either, is actually already in, in the defence portfolio. So that means that roughly, I haven't done the um, exact calculations, but perhaps half a billion dollars over 10 years is allocated to the non-national security sort of side of the house. It's probably even less, I think, once you take some of the law enforcement stuff out. So these budget decisions, again, you know, this is why you need a strong strategy because it helps you prioritise and it tells you what you say no to. And it tells you to redirect resources where it's most needed or valued to get that particular outcome or forestall their future you think might be uh, coming up. I think that, frankly, that's why this is so important too. So I'm glad that the Prime Minister is, um, you know, raising it. I think there needs to be, you know, a congratulate the government on having a, having a strategy, but it's like, you know, it's version 1.0. I think we'll need another couple of iterations to be able to get that understanding of you know really what it is that we need to do given the futures that are out there and how best we can protect Australian democracy values and you know and citizens and then we can just go through the process of saying actually do we want to spend this much money just on cyber security or these other priorities do we want to spend money for now or are we really interested in how we're going to look at the future because a lot of the other way of splitting this budget up is saying what is the now and the world we know now and what is about preparing for the future. As I said, there's roughly 20 million just looking at emerging technologies, which will affect, again, cybersecurity. That's not much of an investment in the future. And if we want to avoid being a taker, which we are at the moment, and want to be shift to being either a maker 
or a shaper, which in an increasingly contestable world is probably where we do need to be, then we need to invest in that future. Yeah, I wouldn't cheat this just to this government. Various governments uh, tend to hang on. Well, and they, they tend to hang on to announceables, so I wonder whether we might get a follow-up announcement from Department of Industry. And that's a very important point to make. This is a, you know, I would be saying much the same sort of thing, I suspect, regardless of government. And the reason why is because of that issues around maturity, around cyber and how we think of it, structural issues inside of government about how, how it's handled and, you know, and where the responsibilities lie, the conceptual frameworks that are used, which are, frankly, out of date and need to be updated. And again, I've got a lot of sympathy. This is a rapidly changing environment. COVID's hit. This was in production last year. I suspect a lot of it really hasn't changed because of that process of consensus and collaboration you go through in government, getting it through the hoops and so on. There's a process which is good, process is good, don't get me bad, because it helps provide surety and you should make sure that the right people are in there, but it's not necessarily going to be sort of rapid, rapid changing. So it may well be that they need to move to the process that defence has gone to, which is here is a strategy, but we know the world's changing. Here's an update. So perhaps we should be looking for an update in another sort of you know, 12 months. I was going to say that was going to be my final question. What, like, there was a lot of fanfare that came with this and probably really a weird amount of attention put on it by government suppliers and cyber companies and that kind of commercial ecosystem around it. How often do you think there should be a serious look at this? Defence does white papers. So what do you think? Yeah, well, again, your point about you do need to send signals to, to vendors, to the economy, to other agencies, etc., about what your intent is so they can tool up. They have to go and recruit staff. They have to make sure that they can actually get their plans in place, etc., might have to ask permission from overseas officers. So you do need to have these things. But I think um, given the pace of change, you're probably not necessarily looking at, um, I wouldn't wait five years, but given the COVID environment, I would be disappointed if an iteration came out in 12 months and was merely a, yes, just an iteration. I think there are some major structural things here that need to be addressed. I think there are, and again, there's a number of really deep policy questions that need to be tackled. And that includes things such as sovereignty, industry policy, building up that ecosystem. You know, what is the actual environment out there? How are we going to you know, work with our, our fellow democracies, for example, to help stabilise and secure the internet so we can work together? What about the long-term issues around R&D, et cetera? So there's a lot of policy work and you know, strategy work that needs to be done in the meantime. Now, that's not going to be done just by doing community consultations. This is hard work. This is where you need real intellectual grunt. And the problem we have is that the election cycle is at roughly every two and a half years, and it tends to sort of sideswipe a lot of these things. So I'd be looking for, say, something about 12 months. I'd be looking for the agencies inside government to actually be out there already talking about this sort of thing. I'd be looking for the industry panel to actually have new members on it from small and medium enterprises who are much more that coalface around resilience, for example, not just the big industry players. Government tends to favour in large industry players in part because those industry players look like government. They know how they act. And again, the defence of smaller enterprises, they're often very thin on the ground too. So you know, their ability to be able to contribute is often limited. So, but there needs to be a balance.
Yeah. One thing is certain, it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch in the coming years. And I suppose the way this strategy rolls out and the iterations that follow will depend largely or in part, at least, on just how dark the world does become and how big a threat that uh, we start to see. Leslie Seebeck, CEO of the Cyber Institute at Australian National University, thank you very much for coming on the Commercial Disco. I really appreciate it. Terrific. Thank you very much, James. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco... Wishing you a great week ahead.